Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group. In this episode of Defense 2020, I'll be continuing a conversation with three experts about innovation in the national security sector. My colleague, Andrew Hunter, Director of the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group and Senior Fellow in the International Security Program at CSIS. Chris Bros, Head of Strategy at Anderil Industries and a Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And Rachel Hoff, Policy Director at the Ronald Reagan Institute. Chris Bros, Rachel Hoff, and Andrew Hunter, thanks so much for joining me today. So, Rachel, on our, our last episode, we sort of left the conversation having put out, I think, a lot of the challenges facing the Department of Defense and Congress and others who are looking at innovation. And maybe it's helpful at this point to sort of step back and say, where have those engines of innovation been in the U.S. government, in DOD, and maybe even outside government? And how should we be looking to leverage either those same traditional approaches and where should we be looking for new outcomes? So I think it's useful to start sort of historically. So certainly during the Cold War, not only was was the U.S. the primary driver of R&D spending and, and investment around the world, but within that, that money was coming disproportionately from the U.S. government and then disproportionately therein from, from the DOD. Um, and that paradigm has changed dramatically. So not only is the U.S. now not the primary global investor in R&D and innovation. Obviously, the rest of the world, countries in Europe and Israel, and then most recently China, have caught up and surpassed as a whole U.S. spending. But within that U.S. piece of the pie, U.S. government spending and DOD spending has now been eclipsed by private sector spending on R&D. And so that shift is something that clearly the DOD has not adjusted to in in terms of how and how to contract. I think Chris sort of got into some of this conversation in the last episode um, in terms of how to do acquisition. And I think the private sector has had some difficulty adjusting to this as well. I mean, clearly, the success of the private sector in Silicon Valley tech firms shows that they're doing great for private sector means. But when it comes to the ways in which these technologies are dual use and have applicability in the national security sector, in, in addition to their commercial applications, that barrier between the U.S. government and bringing these dual-use technologies to bear has proven high, though 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 hopefully not insurmountable. Um, I think there's there's a lot of a lot of things that both DoD and and um, some firms, um, some of these innovation and technology firms are doing to to help get past this moment and really adjust to that the new reality that we're in. Chris, where do you think we can pick up and carry forward some of the ways in which innovation in the national security sector has functioned in the past and where is it just going to have to be different? Yeah. I think we have I think we make a mistake when we think about institutions as innovative. There are innovative institutions or those that have that mandate, but organizations are not innovative. Individuals are innovative. And I think in the past we have been at our greatest and most successful when we have actually recognized that there are individuals who are true innovators, 
and we've empowered them to do the very thing that they're capable of doing. You think of Bernard Schriever in the early Cold War, Hyman Rickover, Kelly Johnson at the early Skunk Works. You know, those are what we would call today founders. And if you look at how venture capital firms actually make their investments, they bet on people. Um, they bet on the leaders of these organizations. They bet on the founders of these companies. They don't need proof necessarily that they can solve every problem that they have set out for themselves. They're betting that that individual is going to be capable of figuring it out. And we've been at our best when we have actually made those kinds of decisions, when we've picked winners and we've said, we're going to concentrate a lot of our investment uh, and a lot of our effort in an individual's ability to solve an incredibly complex problem like the nuclear Navy or like the ICBM. And I think we could do a lot of good by going back to that model of really thinking about if you take joint all domain command and control, you know, the new hotness, who is the individual who's going to help the department solve that problem uh, the way that some of those early innovators solved some of the most transcendent problems we had in the early Cold War? I think that we would be much better off if we thought about it that way rather than expecting a process or an organization or an institution to solve that problem for us. At the same time, though, just to push you a little, the institutions or the processes or however you want to put it, the system, it has to be able to reward those people. It has to be able to identify them. And the idea has to have some light. And how do you see DOD or the U.S. government in general helping make sure that happens? Yeah. And I, and I think it's more about the senior leaders have to identify those people. They have to empower them. They have to give them resources. They have to give them space and they have to protect them. Many innovators, their own institutions routinely tried to sack them throughout the course of their careers. And, and that is somewhat explainable or uh, understandable in light of uh, what they were trying to do and how it was contrary to the way the institution had defined its interests. Oftentimes what senior leaders have to do, more, you know, most importantly of all, is just recognize who those great individuals are, uh, give them the space to be successful, give them the resources, hold them accountable for results, um, and then protect them when everyone comes after them. That's not a dramatically complex set of things to have to do. It doesn't necessarily require an entire institution, but it certainly requires the buy-in and commitment from senior leaders. Yeah, I, not to take us down a statistical rabbit hole here, but I wonder how much of the great uh, man theory of history, if you will, is survivorship bias. You know, so we had these really great thinkers, and we can name ten of them that you know led to dramatic transformation. But maybe the system just managed to eliminate the other ninety who would have also been incredible innovators if the system hadn't killed them first. So I, I think Chris's point is well taken. Like it, this is a human talent enterprise, and there are people who just are more innovative in their in their way of thinking or are bigger risk takers. You know, you have to encourage them. But I, but I also think there's a role for making the system friendlier to change and friendlier to innovation so that not everything takes you know a genius or not every change on the system takes a secretary of defense personally intervening to get it done and i think there are some things that that prove out over time as facilitating or being enablers to uh, more innovative approaches. And actually, one of them was something that Chris promoted in, when his time on the Hill, which was cross-functional teams, so bringing people from the requirements community, the budget community, the acquisition community, the operational community together to exchange information in really you know, short intervals of time 
so that the system was updating much more rapidly. And that has had a big payoff in the rapid acquisition world. I think it's having a big payoff in some of the Army CFT processes where they are succeeding. And not all of them are succeeding, but some of them are succeeding. I think there's a real payoff to that. So I, I do think there's an institutional piece that has to go with finding the right people and protecting them. We haven't talked directly about federal R&D dollars, and there's so many tools, but I do want to talk about that directly because it, it's it's so fundamental to how we have innovated in the past in the public-private interface where DOD in particular, but again, NASA, there are some other examples, their um, ability to reach out and provide dollars to research communities, the academic community um, and startups has been so fundamental in how we've been able to keep an innovative economy. I think most people who look right now at national security innovation, that is not the first thing on their mind is federal R&D dollars because we have such a vibrant economy in terms of the tech sector and the ability of VCs and others to invest in that. But is it gone? Does it not matter anymore? Or is there an important role still to play for federal R&D? I have very strong feelings on this, so I'm happy to go first. So I, I think there's a really vital role here because the growth of private sector R&D is profound. It is a massive change, and it's a good thing because you know that's really good for the economy. I think there are still incentive structures in private sector R&D that means that they will they will pursue technologies that they can see the return on investment in a time horizon that is, for national purposes, relatively short. Some investors are more patient than others, but patience generally is not a feature of most modern investors. The government can afford to be a longer-term investor, and so there's there's fundamental science and technology work uh, that needs to be done. That I think federal R and D remains by far and away the best mechanism uh, to do that. And I would point specifically to things like the ability to explainability for AI or the ability to validate learning algorithms to do high-consequence tasks. I think these are things government R&D is particularly well-suited to do uh, that can leverage this this massive private sector investment that's out there. I think that I, I mean, I totally agree that there's a role for federal R&D. Um, but I also think, you know, the days where federal R&D uh, was sort of king of the realm are just not coming back. And we need to think and do a lot better at creating the incentives to make all of that private research and development, all of that private capital work for us in national defense. And I think we've just really abjectly failed to do that in recent years. The thing that the U.S. government needs to do is create the incentives and create demand. Andrew's right. There are certain things that private R&D, venture capital, if left to its own devices, is not going to create. But if the U.S. government creates a strong demand for uh, the types of capabilities that they would like to see private R&D going toward, if they suggest and, and show empirically that they're going to buy a lot of those capabilities, you're going to see a lot of that private investment go to solve those problems. And it's going not just to solve the problem that the Department of Defense uh, has sort of said in a color-by-number way that it wants solved, but it's going to solve those problems with new technologies, creative approaches that federal research labs would never have come up with if left to their own devices. We need as the government to create the types of incentives where all of that money, which is many multiples larger than the Department of Defense's entire budget, um, can be brought into alignment 
to actually start solving these problems. But the only way that's going to happen is if the Department of Defense actually puts its money where its mouth is, not on the R&D side, but on the procurement side, to actually buy the capabilities that are innovators and uh, small companies and emerging technology you know, kind of developers are, are out there building for the Department of Defense. Rachel, this kind of hits right into the core, I think, of what you all did with your Reagan Institute study. Can you talk through what some of those incentives might be that Chris is talking about? I think everybody around this table is in agreement that gets the private sector capital energized around issues of national security. Right. So to start over the last year in 2019, the Reagan Institute convened a task force to to tackle a lot of these issues that we've been talking about came out with a report late last year called the Contest for Innovation. It was a a bipartisan task force. Our own Chris Bros served as a member, co-chaired by former Deputy Secretary Bob Work and former Senator Jim Talent. And with many other great voices around the table, the task force was able to sort of come up with a a set of recommendations to get after some of these challenges. And I, I think to your question about incentives, I would echo, first of all, what what Chris said about demand signal and and showing that companies that that want to pursue these dual use technologies and and pursue the Pentagon as a as a customer will find a market there. And then more broadly, I guess, aligning those funding incentives in to where, you know, Chris talked earlier about the the fifty thousand dollar contracts and and aligning those those funding incentives to where the investments are significant enough to draw draw these companies into the mix. I mean, what we're used to with the tr- traditional defense industrial base and and the prime contractors that have been doing, you know, doing this work for decades and have gotten really good at working with the DOD as a partner, unlike the traditional defense industrial base and these primes that have gotten really good at working with the DOD, these new companies that are part of this broader national security innovation base are never going to be in a situation where the DOD is their primary customer or their largest customer, or as is the case with their primes, with the primes, their only customer. And um, we've just got to adjust to, to that new reality and figure out ways to to engage these new companies. Chris, that one of the perceptions I think that's widely held, I still hear it, frankly, on Capitol Hill and elsewhere, is that many folks in tech don't want to work with DOD. And this is a byproduct, presumably, of the Project Maven, which is a Google effort where there was a revolt, if you will, of those who didn't want Google to be doing work with DOD. That was several years ago. Fast forward to today, you work in tech. You work on national security programs. Are there elements of the tech sector that really don't want to work on national security defense issues? And how do we handle that? Yeah, I think there are definitely elements of the technology community that don't want to work on military problems for reasons of conscience or uh, some other reason, and that's totally fine. But I think a lot of the members of the technology community who get the most press, who sign the letters, you know, who petition the leadership of their companies, I think it's a minority and I think it's a vocal minority. Um, I think it's wrong for Washington to paint Silicon Valley with one brush. Uh, or, or look at the technology community as some somewhat monolithic in the same way that it's wrong for the technology community to look at Washington and think that it is monolithic. Um, in my experience, there are tons of engineers, uh, tons of developers in uh, the United States uh, who would want to work on national defense. Um, they would want to do it because they believe it's the right thing to do. Uh, they want to do it because they think that there could be an opportunity for them to be successful, to you know, build a successful company. Um, but many of them are drawn to these problems because they're engineers and they're drawn to hard problems. 
Um, and you know, one thing you can say for the Department of Defense is it has some of the coolest and hardest problems around. What we have failed to do, and I think the reason you've seen over many decades so many of these folks opt out of national defense and go do work in the commercial sector is because they have not believed that national defense is going to be a path for them to succeed as an individual to help build a successful company. And unfortunately, there's a lot of empirical evidence to suggest that that's right. Uh, so you've seen engineers and investors just just go elsewhere. I think you know that happened not by accident, but because of incentives that we created, some conscious, some unconscious. It would also suggest that if we created different incentives, um, those people can be absolutely brought back into the national defense world, uh, that there can be problems that are attractive to them. And if we make it worth their while in the form of actually buying the capabilities that they develop and buying them at scale uh, so that they can see a real path to individual success and corporate success, that is absolutely something that you'll see a lot more of. The bottom line answer is most American engineers, I think, are perfectly happy working on national defense. We just have to make it a lot easier for them to do so and be successful at it. How would you rate the utility to date of the approach DOD's taken with what I would call a constellation of hubs, outposts, DIU-type organizations, the Futures Command, these efforts to get beyond the beltway and uh, take off the uniform and try to talk to tech outside of traditional bounds? Are those bearing fruit? Is, is there more we should be doing there? I think we should do it. Uh, I think it always has the risk of becoming innovation theater. At the same time, I think the the problem, if you go back and look, and I think you know Andrew and and your CSIS colleagues have done great work on this here. The problem in recent decades has not necessarily been a failure of new entrants to try to enter the federal market. Many, you know, tens of thousands of these companies have sought to enter the federal market. The problem is, after a few years, they're all gone. The the challenge is, how do you retain them? Um, how do you identify the ones that are truly successful? And, and enable them to scale the contracts they have, the programs they're building, the companies that they have. You know, that if you look at it through the eyes of a venture capital firm, a small Cyber phase one contract of, you know, $700,000 is literally discounted to zero. Uh, they do not look at it as real revenue. They do not look at it as a, a positive symbol of success for that company because the, the historical experience is that it's going to be one time, it's going to be a science project, and it's never going to lead to anything meaningful. And again, unfortunately, all too often that's been the case. So you know, in terms of, in terms of whether these things are worth doing, you know, the AFWorks, the DIUs, yeah, I think they're, doing, they're worth doing. I think it's great you know, for the department to kind of get beyond its walls and try to bring new, you know, new people and new companies into national defense work. You know, but the far more important challenge is going to be whether they can keep them there and whether they can actually reward the ones that do good work with larger contracts that enable them to become more successful in larger companies. Yeah, Andrew, I'd love to get your take on that and then also just to make your life more complicated, throw in the allied and partner piece because tech is diffusing internationally. So now, particularly in places like Europe and some of our key allies in Asia, they are hubs of innovation and potential solutions. How do we bring them in at the same time we're trying to bring U.S. industry in? Yeah, I, there's so much irony in this particular uh, part of this discussion because, you know, I think there's so much good intention that goes into all of this, and we just can't seem to get out of our way. 
You know, the Cyber SBIR system, Small Business Innovative Research System, is one of the few places where there is unallocated R&D money that can be had, and the process requirements are relatively light. And so what you see is the Air Force leveraging uh, SBIR to do these pitch days where they get people on contract in, you know, a very small, you know, in an hour or less. And so in many ways, you say, great, you know, here's this process. It seems to do what we want. It gets non-traditional companies involved in defense acquisition, does it really fast, very low level of administrative burden. But as Chris says, so little of it over the time has actually gotten through that valley of death that we talked about in the first episode. And you know, to some extent, that valley death needs to be there because if you believe in a fail-fast model of innovation, there needs to be failure. There needs to be a fair amount of failure. And I think that valley of death can be looked at in some ways as the failure point where we figure out what needs to go forward and what doesn't. The problem is, I think, is, is too much fails in the, in the, out of the SBAR system. And so, you, you know, not enough gets through the valley to the other side. And that's very a very real problem and one that, that we've got to figure out. On the allied and partner piece, I think there's a similar dynamic in play. You know, it, traditionally, the U.S. just believed that all the best technology was here. And so anything we did with allies and partners was just a thing that we did to be nice. Uh, you know, this is in some ways a sort of Trumpian view of the world, right? It's just us doing favors for other people, and there wasn't much in it for us. That is, I think, profoundly not true in today's world. Not to say that the U.S. is still a leader in a lot of places, because it is, but there is very good stuff uh, out there around the world and very smart people uh, developing technology elsewhere. So we actually have a tremendous amount to gain by leveraging technology developed in our allied and uh, partner nations and in their civilian economies that they may not even using for defense purposes, but that we can use for defense purposes. Uh, and and the question is, how do we change our mindset, which has been that the, the purpose of all our technology controls is to keep as much in the U.S. as possible and allow as little out and as little in as we can to a true exchange situation? Just to pick up on that, I think, you know, one of the more interesting recommendations that came out of our Reagan Institute task force is actually kind of picks up on exactly what Andrew's talking about to create new mechanisms to allow our allies and partners to contribute more to this this sort of innovation base that we've been talking about. You know, we work so closely with with many of our allies on very sensitive things like intelligence and and share a lot of sensitive information in that realm, but to not offer pathways to coordinate when it comes to innovation is a, is a is to our own detriment. And and what made me think of it was you know when you sort of reference like a Trumpian element here, actually giving our allies and partners ways to contribute more picks up on what. Um, you know, that segment of this administration has been has been talking about in terms of our allies and partners need to contribute more. And so the task force came up with this recommendation to create sort of a follow on to the NTIB, a partnership for a secure innovation base that can actually um, offer these opportunities for for the innovation bases of our allies and partners around the world to to coordinate and contribute to to our own and collectively. So, Rachel, let me stay with you for a moment. Going beyond politics, this administration and its national security strategy, which is from late 2017, talked about having a national security innovation base. And your work kind of builds on this. The fact that it was there really helped kind of create a little bit of impetus around these issues of innovation and national security. Administration hasn't really built on that as a term, if you will, but presumably there are some things underway. I would invite you to to comment on that. Yeah. 
what what you see already underway. But also, I just want to pull back to this idea of a national security industrial base is suggestive of industrial policy, which has in the past been a bit of a third rail issue, whether we're an unfettered free market to are we controlling ourselves in something like a socialist manner and industrial policy tends to get caught in that. Do you still see that kind of tension or dynamic underway? Or do you think that the specter of competition with China has shifted the viewpoint politically away from concern about the federal government getting involved on national security matters and industrial policy? I think I lean a little bit more toward the latter, that the competition and, and the nature therein has changed that conversation a bit. But look, you know, whether whether you know, you want to lean into the concept of industrial policy or, or you've got concerns over it. I think there are lots of reasons to pursue this concept of a national security innovation base and really building out what it would mean to to have a DOD and a U.S. government that uh, knows how to to leverage these technologies into the service of our national security. There are lots of arguments for how to do it and why to do it, I should say. And um, and I'm sort of a all are all are welcome here approach on on uh, on the topic. I think, you know, in terms of what the administration can do, you're right that this concept of the national security innovation base was born out of the national security strategy, national defense strategy. What we tried to do with our task force was take up the ball and kind of run with it. Say this is this is a helpful concept as sort of a successor to the traditional defense industrial base to broaden the aperture and and think about all these things we've been talking about over the course of this conversation. I think the number one thing that they could do, maybe the more most interesting recommendation in the task force report, is to create an interagency coordination body assigned with getting after this problem. So you know, maybe a national security innovation committee or something that sort of not a new layer of bureaucracy, but an interagency coordinating body that owns the problem. Because we've talked about how it's it's not exclusively resident in DOD anymore. Um, we've talked about the way that the private sector has shifted in, in ways that the government is not uh, not accustomed to, you know, having um, having you know acquisition and and contract relationships with, and in order to to get after um, a holistic approach to this, something like this coordinating committee would really, I think, allow um, the various representative stakeholders, certainly from the D- DOD, from Commerce, from Trade, from OSTP, to get around a table and and actually own the problem. And Chris, what about on Capitol Hill? What is it that you think? ought to be the locus of focus for those authorizers and appropriators who are thinking about how they spur innovation inside the national security sector. Yeah, the the one big thing that I wish Congress would do is also the thing that I'm very skeptical that they will do in the near future, if ever, is give the department uh, greater flexibility about spending in-year of execution money. You know, the department or rather the Congress uh, is very eager to see exactly how the department is going to program all of its dollars uh, well into the out years. And that's a totally reasonable thing to want. I am concerned, however, that we we simply have not given the department enough money uh, to use flexibly in the current year of execution. You know, what what ends up happening is as the budgets are planned, you know, a year to two years in advance, the department has to program for what it knows then. And as it gets into the year of execution, it's then stuck trying to reprogram small bits of money uh, through very cumbersome processes uh, that just take a long time. 
the the one thing that I think could really help is just giving the department larger amounts of money, uh, still requiring oversight, still requiring reporting as to how they use them, uh, but to really take advantage of opportunities, emerging technologies, um, new innovations that occurred after they actually built their budget and put it in concrete and sent it to the to the Congress. I think it would create a lot more ability for the department to uh, get after buying some of these things at scale um, right when they need them. How much has the administration's use of DOD funds to reprogram to the border wall hurt the prospects for that happening? Almost completely. Andrew, I'll, I'll let you kind of speak to either the Hill or the administration. What, what are first the blind alleys you suggest they not pursue, maybe just to add a little color to the conversation? And then where would you really like to see some change concretely? Well, let me just say amen to what Chris said about financial flexibility. I think that's an absolutely critical component. We have, uh, you know, as referenced in the conversation I had earlier today, we have reformed and reformed and reformed on the acquisition side, not to say there isn't more work to be done, but you know, we, we've been uh, working on that for a long time. When you look at the, the rules for how we handle money, those rules have been unchanged essentially for quite a long time. Uh, and there was an interesting thing in this year's FY21 budget. They created a new budget activity within R&D for uh, software and cloud-type applications. I like that approach to that problem, and I'm hopeful there will be some legislation they propose to go with that to address exactly this concern. As far as blind alleys go, I am a little concerned that that we can put too much of the priorities within acquisition that that trade off against one another, which is sort of speed, cost, and performance. Uh, I think it was appropriate that we have put a bigger priority on speed, especially compared to where we were 10 years ago as we were starting a big budget drawdown. But I think there is a, a real danger at prioritizing one thing, speed, you know, without clear rationale for why that is actually important. You know, why does speed on that particular development process matter? I think when you know why it matters, and you've got a compelling case for why it matters, then you can construct ways to get there that that work uh, and that also address the other priorities that, you know, you can't completely ignore cost. You can't completely ignore performance. Uh, and I'm not saying anyone is, but, but I think there is this tendency to say the world is going fast. We must go fast. Fast is all that matters. Uh, and I think that is – that's a road we've traveled before and usually with not great outcomes. So that's one concern is that we can we can get too much tunnel vision on one aspect of the complex sets of priorities uh, that the department just has to has to deal with. I'm going to throw this open to anyone who has a good one to nominate. If you're listening to this podcast, if anyone's made it this far and they're not a defense wonk, congratulations, you already are. But if there's a way to talk to the rest of the world about what we're talking about here in terms of military innovation and prospects for change and how the competition of China plays into it. Is there a pop culture reference that jumps to your mind that can help translate easily where we are? The first one that came to mind for me was the uh, old Animaniac show, Pinky and the Brain, where genius and insanity together try to take over the world and they never seem to do it. So they have to come back and go the next episode. But honestly, you know, my my day-to-day -day life at uh, a small non-traditional defense company feels much more like the Bridge of Death from the Monty Python uh, and the Holy Grail, you know, where it shouldn't be that hard to get across, right? It's like, what is your name? What is your quest? What is your favorite color? And all too often, it feels like, you know, what is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? It just feels so difficult to get from here to there. And I think that's been our problem all along, and I think it still is. That's pretty perfect. Chris Bros, Rachel Hoff, and Andrew Hunter, thanks so much for joining me today. 
On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group for contributing to Defense 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.